Hey everyone, my name is Adam and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. At the end of today's episode, please take a minute and download our free Chestnut Ridge app. It has all our recent message content and more. You can also head to theridge.church to get information on service times and get info on everything going on here at the Ridge. We hope this podcast will encourage and inspire you as you continue to grow in your relationship with God and others. This morning, we're going to be wrapping up our timeline series today, and every summer, we do a summer series that's usually a little bit longer, and every talk could probably stand alone, stand on its own, right? It's, it's telling a different story, maybe, or a different topic, right? And this summer, we've looked at all these different stories from the Old Testament. We kind of started in the beginning with creation, and here we're ending today with Daniel and his friends during the Babylonian exile. And the incredible thing, though, is that I think is, is that there's a common thread that ties it all together. They aren't standalone, in the sense. It's an overview of, of kind of what God did in the Old Testament. But even more than that, we've seen a common thread of the fact that they're all pointing to Jesus. They're all telling one unified story that's looking forward to Christ, which is pretty remarkable, I think. But as this series is wrapping up today, it means summer is wrapping up as well, and for some of you, that's probably bringing some excitement, but for others, that might be bringing some anxiety, some fear, not looking forward to being back in school or being in a new season. Maybe you just love summer, you don't like fall, and it could be vice versa. Maybe you hate summer and you're really looking forward to fall, but with seasons changing, something that I like to try to do, I'm not great at, but I've been doing this past week or two weeks is thinking about the summer and kind of just reflecting on it. What, what, man, what has summer been like for me, for my family? What's been good? What's been bad? What do we want to change? How do we want to grow moving forward? And I think taking that time to reflect in between seasons is something we could all probably do a little bit more. Just that taking inventory is really beneficial. But as I've been doing that, I've been thinking about our summer vacation. We went to the Outer Banks, Right, it's one of, become one of our favorite spots. We've gone the past two years with my wife's family and it's just a blast. But while we were there, um, we had our youngest daughter this February, Aria, and she's about four, she was about four months old when we were there, so she wasn't really quite old enough to be in the ocean yet. And then our older daughter, Kinsley, who's gonna be four here in a couple weeks, you know, the ocean, she's not really the biggest fan of it quite yet. It's a little big, it's a little scary for her, which I get, you know, coming from a four-year-old, it's really big and scary. So neither of them really are in the ocean at all, but... It didn't stop me or my wife from getting in the ocean. And in particular, me, I love swimming in the ocean. That's like, I wanna go to the beach so I can just be in the ocean, swim and have fun in the waves. I really turn into a little kid again when I'm in the waves and swimming, just having a blast. It's one of my favorite things to do. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about, you know, when I was a kid, right? And my parents were teaching me about swimming in the ocean. And just like your parents probably taught you, and if you have kids, you're teaching them, there's kind of one major thing you need to be doing when you're in the ocean. And that's you need to be looking back to the beach, making sure you see our tent, right? Look for our tent, look for our chairs, look for our flag, whatever it is that signifies this is home base, you need to always be looking for that. And why? Well, it's because the current of the ocean can make you drift. It can kind of take you away from your home, from the place you need to be. And you can eventually, like you can be swimming and having a good time And then all of a sudden you look up and you're somewhere totally unrecognizable. And there's also riptides, right? There's riptides, there's undercurrents in the ocean of things that will just kind of pull you down and spit you out somewhere else and kind of catalyze that whole process. 
So the ocean can be kind of a scary and dangerous place in that sense. It can make you drift away from where you need to be to somewhere where you're totally lost and unrecognizable. But I think the ocean is not the only place in which we drift in our lives. In fact, I think drifting is something we very often naturally do. I would even go as far to say that our nature is to drift away from God. And that's the problem that we're gonna be talking about today. Our nature is to drift away from God. D.A. Carson says this. He says that people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and we convince ourselves that we've been liberated. Don't hold back, DA, tell us how you really feel. Right? He kind of comes on really strong there, but I think he's making a really good point that we don't drift toward God naturally. Our natural bent is that we drift away from God over time. I mean, like, think about it. Like, has there ever been a time in your life, because there's certainly been times, plural, in mine, where I've been like, man, I need to start praying a little bit more. Maybe I'm, I'm gonna do this Bible reading plan, you know, every day. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray at these times every day, and, you know, maybe the first day I do it, and the second day I do it, and, you know, by after a week, I, I, something comes up, and I miss a day, and, you know, it's like, well, the next day I'm just a little too busy, and then it just kind of keeps going over and over, and it compounds and compounds until suddenly, you you're not even doing it at all anymore and you're just, you haven't done it for weeks and you look up and you're somewhere unrecognizable. We naturally drift away from God. We naturally drift in that area of our lives and, and if we think of other areas of our lives, this drifting is very natural. It's what happens. I mean, most people don't just wake up and decide to make a really terrible decision. You don't make a terrible, life-damaging, life-altering decision. It's a drift that happens over time, it's, it's little things every single day that happen eventually, you wake up somewhere unrecognizable. And maybe you can't even recognize yourself. Well, the book of Daniel, I think it tells us how to avoid this. And that's who we're gonna be looking at today. And, and the takeaway here today, what we are to do is to stand firm. And why stand firm? Because God is in control. To avoid drifting in our lives, we are to stand firm. And we are to stand firm because we know that God is in control. We're gonna look at Daniel and his buddies and see how they avoided drifting in this way. But first, let's play catch up. From last week where we left off with Elijah up until Daniel, let's see kind of what's been going on in the timeline with Israel. So we had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, right? They got divided. And we were following along with Elijah in the northern kingdom. And despite Elijah and, and everything that God did through him and everything God did through other prophets in the northern kingdom, they continually turned away from God. They continually drifted, you might say, away from God toward other gods and other things. And because of that, God allowed the Assyrian Empire to take over the northern kingdom in 722 BC. So they take over the northern kingdom and the northern kingdom then goes into exile. Well, the southern kingdom of Judah, they did not fare much better because in 605 BC, God had King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire take over the kingdom of Judah. And it went back and forth for a little while, but they were in this exile time period, the southern kingdom was as well, and under the Babylonian Empire at first. 
And this is where Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come into the picture. Although those aren't their original names, those are their Babylonian names, their original names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They come into the picture here. But before we go on in the book of Daniel uh, and and kind of talk about his friends and, and what's going on with them, the book of Daniel does something else really interesting. It doesn't just tell us about what was going on with them in that exact time period. It also points forward to what was yet to come. And it does this by visions and dreams and and, and, in kind of a way that we would call them prophecy, right? We look back and we see all this prophecy in the book of Daniel, God telling his people then and telling us now what was going to come. And it's really incredible. If you really study this, you can really see how a lot of these prophecies have already come true And the biggest one, I think, in my opinion, is is the prophecy of Jesus coming, the Messiah coming, and he gives years to when the Messiah is gonna come. And it is like, I mean, accurate, like crazy. It's remarkable. We don't have time to really dig into that today, but I would encourage you to look at it. Because not only has it given us some things that have already come to pass, but it also tells us of some things that are still yet to come, like the return of Christ and what that's gonna look like and what it's gonna be like. So I would encourage you to dig into the book of Daniel in that way. But back to Daniel and his friends. They were among this group of Israelites that were taken by the Babylonian Empire. What the empire would do is they would come in, they would conquer a land, the Israelites for example, and they would take their best and brightest young people, young men, and they would take them away and they would train them up in the way of Babylon. So their whole goal was, hey, if we take their best and brightest away, that's gonna hurt them. But if we train them up to be really great Babylonian citizens, not only is it hurting them, it's gonna strengthen us. So they would take them away and they would give them new names, right? Like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Daniel was given the name Belteshazzar. So they give them new names. They teach them the Babylonian language. They try and change their diet. They do everything differently. Instead of doing everything as an Israelite, as a Hebrew, as a Jew, they would have to do everything as a Babylonian. And in a way, they were really kind of, for lack of a better word, kind of brainwashing and transforming these boys into something totally different. So this is the culture, this is the context that we find Daniel and his friends with all of this happening. So in Daniel chapter one, we're gonna pick that up in verse eight. And we're gonna see what's going on with Daniel here. So in in verse eight, it says this. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked for permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. Yet he said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has signed your food and drink. What if he sees your faces looking thinner than the other young men your age? you would endanger my life with the king. So for some of you, you might be like, why is it a big deal? Why why isn't he just eating the king's food? Well, God had given the Israelites a bunch of rules to follow. And the purpose of these rules was to set them apart as God's people, and secondarily, also to kind of point out the fact that, hey, no one can really follow all the rules, and we actually need a savior. But so he gives them these rules, and part of these rules were food laws. They were only to eat certain things. They were not to eat certain things, right? You might know it as eating kosher. And so Daniel is saying, look, you might have changed my name. You might be teaching me this language, but I'm not gonna disobey God. I'm not willing to do it. He's kind of standing firm in that sense like we were talking about. So we see in verse 11 what happens. Daniel comes up with a pretty good idea and he tells the guard from the chief eunuch had assigned Daniel, 
Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his buddies were all with him. Please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food. And deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them about this and tested them for 10 days. It's pretty interesting, right? Daniel's like, okay, let's see what happens. We're not gonna eat the king's food. Just let us do this for 10 days, little experiment. We'll eat way less calories than these guys. And we'll see if we look thinner or if we're looking kind of beefed up and as bulky as you want us to be looking like these guys. We'll see what happens. So he goes on in verse 15. Let's see what goes on. At the end of 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all of the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and their wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now, the Bible is not promoting vegetarianism here. Um, The point that the Bible is making what, what is going on here is that God is in control. Daniel trusted not in the food that he was eating or in the one who was giving it to him, but he trusted in the God who is sovereign over that earthly kingdom. God was able to provide, and even though these boys were eating at a caloric deficit compared to the other guys, they were looking healthier and better and stronger and more fit, even though they were eating less. See, God was the one who provided. God was the one who was in control. And it's because of the fact that God was in control that Daniel was able to stand firm. He trusted in that. He hoped in that. That even though he was gonna be doing something different, God was going to provide. God was going to be in control. We're gonna jump ahead to Daniel chapter three. And in Daniel chapter three, we see Nebuchadnezzar, the king, he has a gold statue built, 90 feet high, 90 feet wide, huge. It's probably not a statue of himself, it doesn't say, but the Babylonians had gods and they didn't view their king as a god, so it was probably of one of their gods. And what happened is that he commanded everyone to bow down to this statue commanded everyone to, be, to bow down to the statue. And the statue, it was not where Daniel was, but it was in Dura. And Dura is where Daniel's friends were. So this is presenting an obvious problem for them. Let's see what happens. Daniel chapter three, verse eight. Some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. You as king have issued a degree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a, into a furnace of blazing fire. So not only are they commanded to do something that's strictly against God's law and would have them turn completely away from God, but there's a consequence. And it's not just a little consequence, the consequence is death to be burned alive. And so they have a really difficult decision to make. Do we stand firm? Do we trust God? Or do we just go with the waves of the culture, with the waves of the king and what he wants, this earthly king? Because we know that'll mean safety for us now. Let's see what they do. Verse 12. There are some Jews that you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve you, your gods, or worship the gold statue you've set up. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I've set up? 
Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I've made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is this God who can rescue you from my power? It's interesting right there that Nebuchadnezzar, right, he's saying, who is this God that can take you away, that can rescue you from my power? He thinks he's the one that's in control. He's not in control, not by any means, but he thinks he is. And he's telling Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego he is. I think a lot of times we can feel like someone else or something else is in control, but they're not. God is. Continuing on here in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. I mean, you can't talk about standing firm without talking about these guys and what they're doing here. They have an incredible hope in the fact that God is in control of their situation. What's interesting in verse 17, when they say that God can rescue us from the power of you, God can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, the Hebrew there is not indicating certainty. They're not saying that God is definitely going to rescue us from this bad situation. They're saying that God can God is able because God is sovereign because he is in control here. But he might not choose to rescue us. He might allow us to experience this pain and this suffering. And we probably don't understand why he's gonna allow that. But we can trust that he's in control and if he's allowing it, it's for the best. And we see that that's kind of their mindset in verse 18 because they say, but even if he does not rescue us, we want you to know as king that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. They're saying no matter what happens, we trust in God. I mean, that's one of the most courageous things probably ever spoken. Can we say that? No matter what the outcome is, God, we trust you. Even if the outcome's bad, even if the outcome is something that I don't want, they trust that God is in control no matter what, even though God might not deliver them. God might choose that this is the better way. Let's see what he does, though. Verse 19. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary. And he commanded some of its best soldiers in the army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Since the king's command was so urgent, the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed the men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I see four men, not tied, walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth man looks like the son of the gods. God sent someone to be with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the midst of their suffering. In the midst of their suffering, he sent someone to be with them. And, and some people would say and argue that it's just kind of an angel. 
Others would still say that it was probably a pre-incarnate Jesus that God sent to be with them, and that's probably what I would kind of lean toward and think. Um, But the point is that God is with them in their suffering, proving that he's in control because they're not being harmed, that his way is the better way. It's an incredible thing that God is doing, and the, the, the point, I think, is that God doesn't promise that he will definitely deliver us from something like that on earth, But what he does promise is that no matter what happens, whether it's good, whether it's bad, ugly, he's gonna be with us. He's gonna be with you through it. We continue in verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the most high God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. When the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair on their heads was singed. Their robes were unaffected, and there was no smell of fire on them. God did, in fact, decide to rescue these guys, and it is an incredible story of how he rescued them from impossible situation. But the cool thing is, I think God is doing this to once again prove to Nebuchadnezzar, prove to the Israelites, prove to everyone watching that he is the one in control, and we can have hope in that. Much later, when Daniel's more than 80 years old, the Medes take over the Babylonian Empire, and the Mede king, Darius, he appoints Daniel to be one of kind of his head administrators. And Daniel, being as kind of awesome as he was, as God gifted him to be, proved himself to be kind of a head above all the other administrators, and they got really jealous. And so they kind of come up with this plan to convince the king to create a law. And the law is that anyone who worships any man or any god besides the king, that person will be thrown into the lion's den. And they do this so that way they can have Daniel be killed. This is their whole plan. And so let's see what happens with Daniel when he's faced with a nearly impossible situation as he was before. Chapter six, verse 10 When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house. The windows in its upstairs room opened toward Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees. He prayed and gave thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Daniel continues to pray to his God and pray toward Jerusalem, which was something all of the exiles would have been doing. They would open their windows and pray toward Jerusalem, and it's something that even some Jewish people still do to this day. The funny thing is, is is Daniel winds up getting caught, but I don't know if you could really call it caught because he wasn't really trying to hide, right? Windows open, praying in the same routine. If people had known of his routine before, they could have caught him so easily. He was not trying to hide it. He gets caught, he gets handed over to the king, and the king has but no choice. In verse 16, the king gave the order. They brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you continually serve, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing in regard to Daniel could be changed. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he reached the den, he cried out in anguish to Daniel. Daniel, servant of the living God, the king said, has your God whom you continually serve been able to rescue you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke with the king. May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths so that they have not harmed me. For I was found innocent before him and also before you, your majesty. I have not done harm. 
The king was overjoyed and gave orders to take Daniel out of the den. When Daniel was brought up from the den, he was found to be unharmed, for he trusted in his God. Hopefully you're seeing the recurring pattern, the recurring theme here in the book of Daniel. Daniel and his friends continually stand firm in the midst of a crazy generation, of a crazy time in the midst of exile because they trust that God is in control, because there's incredible hope in that fact. And this is the takeaway to stand firm because God is in control. He's been in control of all things that have happened before us. He's in control now, today. He will be in control in the future. He's also in control of of our biggest problem that we have, and we all share a common problem, the problem of sin. We all have this problem of sin, the Bible tells us, we've all turned away. We've all turned away from God. There's nothing that we can do about this problem either, the Bible also tells us, on our own at least. And the wages of this problem, the wages of sin, what we earn for sin is death, an eternal separation from God forever. This is a really big problem. But God is still in control and he proved this by sending his son Jesus, the just, to die for the unjust the righteous to die for the unrighteous, to die in our place for our sin so that anyone who have faith, who believe in Jesus will be saved, will be brought into right relationship with God again. We're all going to live for eternity. Some of us are gonna live for eternity with God forever and some of us are gonna live without him. But this is the biggest problem we all face in our lives and God is in control even in this situation. When I think about this story, these stories, this book of Daniel, I think about this drifting that happens, I I, I kinda begin to ask the question, in what ways are we swimming in the ocean around us, allowing ourselves to be drifting away? Maybe a better question could even be, what ocean are you swimming in? See, these guys, Daniel and his friends, they were swimming in the ocean of the Babylon Empire. And not only was there a current slowly trying to pull them away from God, there were riptides and there were undercurrents and things trying to catalyze that process to take them away from where they were, to take them away from who they were. To do that quickly, what are the oceans that you're swimming in? I think we're all swimming in an ocean of our current culture that while not exactly like the Babylonian one, similar in a lot of ways. I think our current culture is pulling us, if we allow it, away from God, away from his values, away from what he says is true, away from life and life to the full that's only found in Jesus. I think that's something that we all commonly experience, but you might swim in a culture in, at your workplace, swim in that ocean that's very different than mine. Your family life, the friends you hang out with, the people you're around, your school, We all swim in these different oceans and we're surrounded in these different contexts in which we are being pulled slowly away from God. I don't know what your context is, but we all gotta ask the question, what does it look like for us to stand firm? What does it look like to do what Daniel and his friends did? To stand firm in the midst of this ocean that is pulling us away from God and say, no, no, no. I know that God is in control. I know that he is the one that is in control, not you, not your boss, not our families, not a president, not a government, not anyone, but God and God alone. And it's in him that we place our hope. And it's in him that we stand firm. 
Isaiah chapter seven says this, if you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. God is speaking to his people Israel in that, in that, in that chapter. And I think he speaks to us still today. If we do not stand firm in our faith, we will not stand in all. We need to stand firm. And the reason we do that is because we have hope in God. I can't tell you exactly what that looks like for you and your situation. It could be resisting something that your friends want you to do. It could be having to do something really difficult at work. It could be your workplace is trying to make you to do something that you shouldn't do because of what God has told you. I don't know what that is, but what I do know is that we need to stand firm because of the hope that we have in him. And the other thing I do know is that we don't need to be jerks while we're doing it. You know, we see Daniel and his friends, they stand firm, but they're not jerks when they're doing it. They stand firm and they they do so in such a way that they get elevated to positions and they're respected by the people who who are kind of putting these things on them. We see even someone like Jesus stand firm in a way that is just respectful often and gentle. He's not a jerk in that sense, but we still need to stand firm or we will not stand at all. And I think the thing that will help us to do that is that when we realize that that God is the one in control today and forevermore, we can place our hope not in our situation, not in what lies right in front of us, not in what's around us or our circumstances, but we can place our hope in him, the one who is always in control, and we can stand firm in that forever. Let me pray. God, we thank you for this example in the book of Daniel. We thank you for the way in which these men stood firm in the face of insane persecution, in the face of insane waves that were overtaking them and trying to push them and pull them away from you. God, we face a lot of those same battles today and we just ask for the hope that we can find in you, that you help us to see the truth that you are the one that is in control. And that no matter what we face, whether it be persecution, whether it be a really difficult time, whether it be something that we've caused on our own half, we can stand firm knowing that you're the one that's in control. We're grateful for that, God. We ask that you help us to do that today and that as we do that, we be a light to others as Daniel and his friends were a light amongst a dark, dark culture. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.